All right, let's pray. Almighty God, uh, you are so kind and gracious to us, Lord. I thank you so much for this place. I am uh, so blessed to be here and hear your word preached every week. Um, just what a blessing it is to hear your word. And I pray that you would, uh, like was said in Sunday school, that the seed would grow, Lord, um, in us, that we would bring others to you. I pray that those that don't have the seed, today would be the day that they would, uh, you would start growing it and germinating it and watering it, Lord. Help them not to sit another Sunday and not hearing your word preached. Help them to truly come to know you as their Lord and Savior today, Lord, and follow you. The times are getting more and more evil, Lord. We pray that you would give us uh, the strength we need to face what is coming at us, Lord, as uh, we approach the day, the end, end of days, Lord. Give us the strength to uh, preach your word, no matter what, Lord. I pray that you would surround me and surround the pastors, Pastor Keith and Pastor Rick, with men that are going to stand with them, not men that are going to run away when things get tough. I pray that you would surround our pastor's wives with women that are going to stand for truth, and not uh, back down in, in fear and cowardness and um, gossip about leadership, Lord. I pray that you give us strength to do this through your word. I pray that you give my pastor today the words to speak through your word, get, and strengthen him with the Holy Spirit to preach your word today, and that they, they wouldn't fall on deaf ears. I pray that you would bless the mothers that are truly following you, that you would give them strength to raise the next generation of men and women that are going to follow you and that are going to serve you in the, through this church. I pray that you would help us to stand for truth in this church. Help us to uh, love each other, be with each other, want to be with each other, grow together. Lord, I'm so thankful for this place. I pray that you would protect this place, uh, protect my pastors, protect their families and continue to grow us in the grace and knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 14, and I'll be reading verses 15 through 18. At this... Uh, as we continue with this discourse, Jesus is interacting with his disciples, going back and forth here. They're, making, they're asking questions or making statements, and he is providing them with uh, comfort, is really what he's doing. He is departing. He is going to leave. He will no longer be with them, and he wants them to be comforted. First, he, tells, he comforts Peter by telling him, you shall follow me afterward. But what that does is it causes Thomas to ask a question, where are you going and how do we know the way? And Jesus comforts him and says, I am the way to God. And then Philip, because of that statement, asks, Lord, show us the Father. Manifest his character and his nature to us. And Jesus says to him, I have in my person and in my work. And now he continues, this answer that uh, he gave to Philip. He didn't stop at verse 14. This really takes us all the way up through verse 21. His answer to Philip. So at John chapter 14, beginning at verse 15, he says this. 
If you love me, keep my commandments. Some of your translations say, you shall keep, which is future. But um, in Greek, you can use an imperative, keep my word, or you will keep my word, to do the same thing, which is to give a command. So for example, you can tell your kids, you will clean your room. And you don't mean next year. <laughs> you see? <laughs> so with regards to uh, your translation in there, that, that the tense of the verb really doesn't do, um, it doesn't disguise or complicate what Jesus is saying. He's giving a command here in this verse. Keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Amen. Amen. So, what we have here first is uh, evidence of Christ's abiding presence with his disciples. And then we have the agent of Christ's abiding presence. And then finally, I don't know if we'll get here, but I'm going to try very hard. Uh, Verse 18, assurance of Christ's abiding presence. Well, let's take a look at the first here, evidence of Christ's abiding presence. Note what he does here. He finishes, uh, look back with me at verse 11. Chapter 14, verse 11. And here, um, something that John does, he does this commonly, he'll introduce a theme, he'll kind of, it appears like he's moving to talk about something else, and then he brings up the same theme again. It's almost, uh, I've heard different or read different commentators and and authors describe John's reasoning as uh, like a spiral. And what, what John is doing, he is moving deeper, as he circles around to these topics, he's moving deeper, deeper into the truths that he wants to communicate. So look at verse 11. And here, this in part, of course, was in answer to Philip. And he says to him, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Evidence that Christ is the Son of God is furnished by the works that he performed. He constantly says this throughout this gospel and the other gospels. What he said and what he did, evidence that he is the Son of God. So then, he speaks about the uh, issue to answered prayer. We looked at those texts last week. But now he returns to this issue of works or obedience or commands. He says to his disciples, If you love me, then keep my commandments. And here's where we all get tripped up here. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. So sometimes the logic, which is bad logic, goes like this. If I obey God, then he'll give me his spirit. And that's bad logic. Because that's not what Jesus is teaching, and that is not what he's saying. His point here, of course, is evidence that you are his is proved by obedience to his revealed will. Those who are his will continue to do those works which he called them to do. He's departing. He's leaving. He will no longer be with his disciples. 
And by means of this command, he is reminding them what evidence of love for Christ looks like. What does it look like? Obedience to the things that he commands. In other words, uh, you, you could say it this way, you could say that it is obedience to the command that he gives when he ascends into heaven. He says, go into all the nations, and what does he say? Teaching them all things, teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you. And they receive those commands, and in willful submission, they do it, and they teach others to do it. John Chrysostom uh, notes, uh, he says, uh, with regards to this passage, after he had told them, whatsoever you shall ask, I will do it, that they might not deem the mere asking to be availing or an opportunity to take advantage, he adds, if you love me, then. So, um, what's the point that he's trying to make there? I think it's an important point. Jesus just finished saying, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Anything? I want a Ferrari. I want to go, uh, you know, travel the French Riviera for four or five months. In Jesus' name I pray. No. Uh, what, what he's doing now, he's, he is adding this command of obedience because those who love the Lord are going to pray in light of what the Lord commands. Um, that is not to say that we always pray without selfish ambition. We do. We're corrupt and we're fallen. But one who loves Christ and is willing to obey the Lord Christ will pray in line with those things that he has commanded in his word. So it's almost like he's adding this, yeah, but love me and keep my commandments. Love me and keep my commandments. And here this, it's very interesting because John uses this word often, this word keep, it's a, it's a verb. And uh, of course, he's using it in, really in a non-literal way. What does he mean by keep his commandments? What does he mean by that? Obey. Very easily. That's what he means. Obey. Obey my command. Given the context, the commands in view are all things that Jesus commanded his disciples. So he'll even say things like this in John um, 14.23. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my words. So it's not just, he doesn't have the Ten Commandments only in view, but as I said, that charge that he gives in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, all things that I have commanded you. And that's what they are bound to do. Keep the commands of Christ. And as I said, that is evidence of Christ's abiding uh, presence in the life of the believer. How do I know that Christ is being formed in me? What is your relationship to the commands He has given to you? That's the question that you should ask. Am I converted? Is there life? Am I united to Christ by faith? What is your relationship to His commands? Another way you can ask that question very simply, and John answers it in 1 John is, do I love God? What would John say to you? Well, do you keep his commandments? And are his commandments a burden to you? That's what John would ask. 
So uh, this is vital and essential for the believer to know if Christ is dwelling in him. Do you keep his commands? Are they a joy to you? One author writes this. He said, no one can love God unless he has the Holy Spirit. And this connects to the next verse, of course, right? Because he says, and I will give you the Spirit. So bad logic would say, I love him, I keep his commandments, and he gives me his Spirit. But no, in 1 John, John tells us that we don't, we don't love God first. He loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The evidence that God loves us is the offering up of his Son for us. No one can love God unless he has the Holy Spirit. Because we do not act before we receive God's grace. Rather, the grace comes first. 1 John 4.10 We should say, therefore, that the apostles first received the Holy Spirit so that they could love God and obey his commands. But it was necessary. Well, well I'll stop there. Stop there. I'll read the rest of that quote later. But the, the, uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you this, but just to make the statement first at the outset, the apostles already had the Spirit. Um, what Jesus is referring to is a special endowment of the Spirit that these apostles would have. It's the same thing as I said last week. When he says to the disciples, greater works than these you will do, he's not saying that we are going to raise the dead. He's speaking specifically to the disciples. Now, as I said, when you look at those, those, uh, those things that are common to us and to the disciples with regards to obedience to God, can we say that the works being performed in the church age are greater than the works that were performed while Christ was on earth? In, in a few respects, we can. Greater in the sense of overall reach. The gospel has gone out into all the world. There weren't, I, I'm pretty sure, uh, let me tell you a joke. How do you, know that the, how do you know that the 12 apostles were Puerto Rican? Because they were always in one accord. <laughs> okay, but, 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 there were, but there were no, there, there, there were no, during Jesus' day, there were no Cuban, Puerto Rican, Dominican disciples. They were all Jews. And some of the Greeks that interacted with him, Samaritans, but they had to be geographically where the gospel was being preached or where Christ physically was to hear the gospel. But after the, the giving of the Spirit and the uh, apostles go out and preach the gospel, Paul can say, even in Colossians, that the, the word of God, God has gone out into the, all the world and is bearing fruit. So greater in that respect. But not greater in the quality or nature of the work because they are works of the Spirit regardless. Whether we're performing them, the apostles or Christ himself, they are all works of the Spirit. And now, the apostles were performing those works by the power of the Spirit. So let's continue there, here. So, evidence of Christ's abiding presence in the believer is obedience to his commands. Continue in those commands then. Now, the agent 
of Christ's abiding presence. And he says, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. You see, Christ does not abide with his disciples forever personally. Right? He, he is now, uh, there is now a hypostatic union between the second person of the Trinity and a man, the man Christ Jesus. Two natures in one person. So that Christ is now going to ascend to heaven. But what he is going to do in bestowing the Spirit in this particular way to his disciples is he is going to ensure that the Spirit is always with them. In other words, they are not left orphans. He's going to tell us in verse 18. He means exactly the same thing there. And we'll pick it up there when uh, we look at verse 18. And now he says, I will pray. He's going to ask for their benefit as their mediator for those gifts that he purchased by his blood. That's what he's going to do. That's what he's saying to them. I will ask the Father for this gift. And he will pour out this gift on you. So in Ephesians 4.8, and what I thought was interesting is that you can take our call to worship and even maybe our uh, worship through giving, but our call to worship, the Lord's Supper, worship through giving, and this sermon, and put them all under the title, uh, under this phrase is, what we're talking about is an increase of grace. That's what we're talking about here. He, there will be an increase of grace in the life of the apostles when the Spirit is poured out upon them at Pentecost. And Christ makes this uh, clear, or Paul does in Ephesians 4.8, when he says, Therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Those who were captive, he made captives to himself, and then he gave gifts to men. And those gifts he gave, we saw during our Lord's Supper. Apostles, prophets, so on and so forth. Now, this is an essential function that Christ performs even for us today. Of course, um, he is speaking of a specific endowment of the Spirit upon the disciples. But we have that same mediator. In Romans 8, Hebrews 7, Hebrews 9, many other places, Paul makes the same point Christ is our mediator, and therefore we can ask him freely, and you know what he will do? He will intercede for our behalf. Jesus will ask, and God will give. He will give you. And now, specifically, he's speaking to the eleven, as I said. His bestowal of the Spirit or this bestowal of the Spirit that he is talking about in this verse, you can describe it one of two ways. It's either, you can say it's apostolic, or you can say it's Pentecostal. And not Pentecostalism, but uh, marking when Pentecost occurred and the Spirit was poured out. Why do I say this? Well, uh, look with me at Romans chapter 8. In verse 9. I'll read verse, verse 8, but the point is in verse 9. So then, Romans 8, 8. So then, those who are in the flesh, they cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, 
but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So, a common this is a common Roman excuse me John chapter 14 verses 15 and following is a common place where people go to say you see the spirit wasn't poured out in the Old Testament the indwelling of the spirit is specifically a new covenant gift and they didn't have it well then were they Christ's if they didn't have the spirit they weren't Christ's it's impossible for them to be Christ. What does Paul say in Romans 8, 9? He is not his. Therefore, Old Testament believers were converted the same way we are converted. There wasn't a different process. So for, and uh, I'll stop there, and I'm going to add this argument. Were Old Testament believers saved by believing the gospel? They were saved the same way we are. Yeah, remember? We talked about the, uh, in Sunday school class, the promise in germinal form, right? The substance was contained there. But it wasn't all of it. As redemptive history expanded and grew, their understanding of the promised seed expanded and grew. Their hope expanded and grew. But it was the same promise, and it was the same way. What is the distinction then? Because there are many passages that we can go to, particularly the promise of the new covenant, where it says, where God says to his people, he says, I will write my law upon your mind and write it on your heart. I'm going to take out the heart of stone. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my spirit within you. And people go to that passage and they say, you see, the new covenant is different from the old covenant because in the new covenant we have the Holy Spirit. And I would say, you're wrong. <laughs> the reason is not a distinction in the method of salvation, but a distinction in covenants. You had Old Testament unbelievers who were members of the covenant and had a right to because they were descendants of the Jewish people and they were circumcised. Therefore, they had a right to be members of that covenant. And what God is doing, he's showing the distinction between covenants. Not the distinctions between his working in the people. The distinction now is the distinction between covenants. And in the new, all of the members have the spirit. In the old covenant, it was common for all of them not to. Do you, do you, do you understand? Um, these are uh, important nuances. Right? And they can be a little confusing. But I want you to track with me here. This, John 14 is not talking about the indwelling of the Spirit as a gift of the New Covenant in distinction from the Old Testament where they didn't have the Spirit. That is not the case. It's the same operation. They believed in the same Christ. The Spirit worked the same way. But now, there are some things that we do need to think about or ask is... What was common between the Old Testament believers and the New Testament believers? What's common? What do we share in common? And we've already talked about two important things. And then what was uncommon? What is uncommon between us today and them there? And we can uh, see some of these truths more clearly. What was common is the message that they believed. It was the same substance. They weren't saved by a different gospel. Faith in the promise. 
of the seed. What was also common is that the work of the Spirit was essential and is essential for conversion. The Spirit of God had to impart life. That beautiful image that you have where Ezekiel is preaching to a valley of bones. And what begins to happen? The wind blows. And what's the word for wind? Well, it's the same word for spirit. And those, that wind starts to blow and the bones start to rattle. And then the more he preaches, they come to life. Why? The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to impart life to the people of God. And that was a promise, that the Spirit would revive God's people. It's the same way. So that's what we share in common. Uh, many other things, of course. I'm, I'm, uh, I can't say everything. But the message and the work of the Spirit, the same. What was uncom- what's uncommon, though? The diffusion of the gospel, the conversion and edification of the elect. The way that the gospel is spread now is not the way that it was spread in the Old Testament. There, it was done uh, by means of temple worship, ritual, the cult, and not the occult, right? But what I mean by the cult is that entire system of worship, animal sacrifices, uh, you know, the clothes you could wear or not wear, who you could sit down and have dinner with, when you could sit down with your wife and have dinner with your wife. All that stuff was outlined in the Old Testament. So very different. So the way that the gospel was diffused, the way that uh, conversion and edification of the elect took place looks very different today than it did then. Another point that is very important is this, is that the worship of God was centralized in the temple. Right, so you had all of these, you had unconverted people, some converted people going to the temple to worship God. And there the presence of God was visibly manifested. Now, worship is decentralized. We worship everywhere in the world, right? And not even in church buildings. There are brothers and sisters worshiping in basements and in barns and in fields, everywhere. Therefore, what the Spirit, the Spirit does have a bit of a different work then, which is he is a unifying presence. He is the one who unifies all of us together as the body of Christ. So you have these things in common and these things that are not in common. But Old Testament believers were saved the same way New Testament believers was. And that's why Abraham can be called the father of the faithful or the father of the faith. All you have to do, you read Romans chapter 4. Let's turn there briefly. In Romans 4... And here, he picks up on both David and um, Abraham. And he says, uh, look at verse 11. Is that right? Verse 11. Oh, excuse me, verse 16. Therefore, salvation is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. You see, how can I say Abraham is my spiritual father if his conversion is different from my conversion? I can't. He's not. 
He's, God was doing a different thing. This is a new thing. No, but it's the same thing that God is doing. The diffusion, the, 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 excuse me, the bestowal of the Spirit, the outpouring of the Spirit in the New Covenant, it's a, it's a grand and different event, but the same reality is happening. The Spirit performs the same work. And um, one other place that just popped into my head is in Galatians. And it's in Galatians chapter chapter 3 and verse 14. Uh, it's verse 14, but I'll read 13 and 14. Galatians 3. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And that's what, what, that's what should come to mind. When we think about Christ crucified, is He is bearing the curses for me. The curses of the covenant. What covenant? The covenant of works. Not the Mosaic covenant, because God never made the Mosaic covenant with the people of Cuba. So it's the... Um, uh, curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. Verse 14. That the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. What are the blessings of Abraham? The promise of the Spirit through faith. That the Gentiles might receive it. Why? Because during the Old Testament period, you know who wasn't receiving it? The Gentiles. Some did. Some were converted but not the way that they are in this particular age. The message was really confined to the nation of Israel and to those borders that were around them. But now in Christ, it's like um, the, the, those seals have been broken and the promise of the gospel is just spreading and diffusing everywhere. And now he says this, and, and he will give you, the Father will give you, another comforter. Or some of your translations have helper or advocate. And the word can be translated in many, many different ways. The Spirit himself, he, in John 14, 16 and 17, he's a helper. In John 14, 26, he's a teacher. In John 15, 26, he testifies. In John 16, 7 through 11, he convicts. In John 16, 12 through 15, he reveals. So all of these are functions of the Spirit. He is focusing on one particular function. He calls him a paraclete, and that word can be translated in a variety of ways, but given the context, I think the best way to translate it here, some translations even just do paraclete, which is, which is a transliteration of the Greek word. The best way is comforter. He, he is going to comfort you because I'm leaving. And now he is coming for what purpose? To comfort you in light of my absence. To apply to you all of the graces and benefits that you need to live a Christian life. A life that honors me. But what are the implications of this? It says, another helper. That means that they already had a helper. And God's going to give them another one. Well, who was their helper while the Spirit was not poured out in this particular way? It was Christ. He, in John chapter, I think it's chapter 1, right at the end of chapter 1 or chapter 2, Jesus is called the paraclete. And there he is an advocate before the Father. Here, the Spirit is the comforter. 
The implication, one author writes, is this, that Jesus himself has acted as the disciples' helper in supporting and guiding them in the discovery of truth. That's what he was constantly doing. When he was working his miracles, he would teach them. He would preach to the people, then he would take them in private, and he would teach them. They would do something stupid, he'd slap them over the head, come over here, Peter, and he would teach them. That's constantly what he was doing. He was providing them comfort, support, and he was guiding them. And that is exactly what the Spirit now does for every believer. It is better for us that Christ is in heaven. If it were not so, he would be here today. The Spirit comes to undertake this same task. Jesus is praying for his disciples because he knows, because they know, excuse me, because they, they don't know what to ask the Father for at this particular point in time. They wouldn't know what to ask for. So what does he do? He says, I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to ask him for what you need. But what does the Spirit do? In the same way, we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. Romans 8.26. It's the same function, this same operation where God, the Son prays for us because we don't know what to ask for, and then the Spirit in this life, when we don't know what to ask for, he intercedes for us. Where he lifts his voice. He's going to give them another helper. Why? That he may abide with you forever. Literally, in order that he might be with you into the ages. And the word uh, age is the word for eternity. So that he will be with you eternally. This is a gift that will never be taken away from the disciples. The Spirit will always dwell in them. There will always be this union between the believer and God by virtue of the Spirit. And now look at how he's described. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. And you have to ask the question, you know, why? Why is he given this particular name here. He is called the Spirit of Truth. Well, from John, we can derive this. Look at John 16, um, the meaning, or the reason for why he's called uh, the Spirit of Truth. John 16, in verse 13. Three texts. Uh, I have one in John and two in John's, gospel, uh, John's epistle. So, uh, 16, 13. Whoever, excuse me, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you, you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. Why is he called the spirit of truth? Because the truth of God is conveyed to the people of God by the operation of the spirit. We talked about this in Sunday school class. We talked about whether uh, Fernando asked the question, is, is the message of the gospel natural or supernatural? And when we were having the discussion, one of the things that I said is that reception or receiving the gospel is always a supernatural act. 
men are dead in trespasses and sins, unable and unwilling to believe the truth apart from the Spirit of the living God giving them life. It's not a natural process. We're not born of blood. We're not born of men. We're not born of the will of men. But we are born strictly and solely of God. So John 16, John 16, 13 was our text. Now look at uh, 1 John 2, 27. Verse 26, John says, These things I write to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Right? So there's a group of men who are trying to deceive the disciples. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. That anointing is the Spirit. That's what he is talking about. Messiah, uh, Christ, those are all Old Testament or New Testament interpretations of the Old Testament word, which is the anointed one, which meant one who was, oil was poured upon them. For what purpose? So that they can undertake a particular task. So prophets, kings, priests were anointed with oil. And symbolically what that represented was the Spirit of God resting upon them. The Spirit that would enable them to do the work that God had called them to. So this anointing is in them. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you. Now, now, of course, we have to add a correction there. Not a correction of John, but a correction of our thinking. And it's this, that some people read these passages and say, see, we don't need pastors. Right? It says, right here, you do not need that anyone teach you. Well, in Ephesians 4, Eight, Jesus ascends to heaven and he gives gifts to men and one of those gifts are pastors and teachers for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the saints, for their so on and so forth. So what he means here, of course, is he, we don't need anyone to come and bring us some hidden, mysterious, uh, fanciful doctrine. Something that does not uh, agree with what God says. Right? As Paul addresses it in Galatians, he says, look, if an angel from heaven shows up and says to you, oh, um, look, my name is Moroni, and I found these golden plates, and all you have to do is believe what's on these plates, and you can become a Latter-day Saint. Oh, we re would reject those messages. And that's what he's saying here. No, you have the Spirit of God in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it, that anointing, has taught you, you will abide in Him, in God. What does the Spirit do? Again, remember, that's His function. He comes, He illumines, He enlightens he reveals, he instructs us in the truth. That's his business. Look at chapter 5, verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water, not only by water, 
but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. The Spirit Himself is truth, and He testifies to the truth, and He applies the truth, and He helps us understand the truth. And again, this Spirit is one whom the world cannot receive. And by world, of course, He has in view here the world system, those who live apart from God. In other words, unbelievers. The way Paul puts it in Ephesians is he calls them children of wrath, he says that they follow the course of this world. This is who he's talking about. They cannot receive the Holy Spirit. In an Old Testament, no, excuse me, an early church father, Gregory of Nisa, he writes this. The Holy Spirit inflames everything he fills with a desire for the invisible world. He's talking about heaven. And because worldly hearts love only visible things, the world does not receive him. Because it does not rise to the love of what is invisible. Isn't that amazing? Right? If you think about that long enough, the world does not love intangibles. Like if, they can't, if I can't use it right now, if it's not a benefit to me now, if it does not bring me pleasure and joy and happiness, satisfaction today, I want nothing to do with it. That's what it means to be materialistic. And as Christian people, we love the material world because God made it, and we, we must learn how to enjoy the world in a way that pleases God. But ultimately, this visible world is intended to focus our eyes on the invisible and to long for it. For worldly minds, the more they widen themselves with their desires, think about that, if you're a worldly person, one of the things that you do is you widen your desires. Huh. Here, this is a bad illustration, but it probably happens to you. If, uh, if I'm spending time, let's say va- I'm on vacation. Let's say I'm on vacation and I'm at my mother-in-law's house, which I love being at my mother-in-law's house, and she's cooking for me. She's cooking breakfast and snacks and lunch and coffee and dinner, and then food, more food after dinner, and then all the leftovers. What I begin to do when I'm at her house, I just eat and eat and eat. I I eat well to the point after I'm full. So I'm full, but I'm still eating, right? When I wake up in the morning, I'm hungry. You ever had that happen to you? You eat a bunch the day before, you wake up the next day, and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm starving. I just got to eat something. Why? Because what you've done is you've in your belly. <laughs> For lack of better, I don't know the scientific explanation. Maybe somebody else does who was a nurse or something, but uh, you're widening your belly. And when you learn to satisfy your desires by mainly by things of the world, by worldly things, what kind of appetite are you going to increase? The worldly appetites. <clears throat> the more they narrow the core of their hearts to the Spirit. And what they do, what you do is, when you're expanding your love for the world in this particular way, what, what you're doing to yourself is you are diminishing 
your desires for the things of God. And that's why the world cannot see him or know him, is because they have no desire for those things that he offers. That's why Paul speaks that way in 1 Corinthians, um, really at the end of chapter 1 into chapter 2, when he says that the Spirit is the one who reveals the deep things of God, and the world, they they don't receive him. They, They don't want that message. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. The world, by its own resources, cannot elevate itself to a level of communion with God. It cannot. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And he will be in them believingly, experientially, affectionately, and savingly by means of uh, what Matthew Poole says is a mystical union. I've heard other authors write that, John Murray and many others, and that is absolutely true. Now, listen to what he says. Jesus says, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So, if, uh, just, just to think about this, if a person dwells in uh, Wawarsing, where does he live? In Wawarsing. That's not a trick question. He, he lives in Wawarsing. So the Spirit now dwells with them. Where does he live? In them. He's not saying two different things. But when he says to them, and he will be in you, he is highlighting the truth that is about to happen. And again, I don't think he's talking about the indwelling of the Spirit that occurs in conversion. Here's why I don't think so. Look at the end of the Gospel of John. It's chapter, uh, I believe it's chapter 20. This is after the resurrection. He's commissioning the apostles for their ministry. And in verse 22, he says to them, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, the question that I have for you is, Did they receive the Holy Spirit right there in the way that Jesus is speaking about in John 14? Well, the problem that you run into is this. Go to Acts chapter 1. And verse 7. Jesus says, It is not for you to know the times and seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Verse 7. Now verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, were they given the Spirit in John 20? Are they waiting for the Spirit in Acts chapter 1? Now look at this. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. 
When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven and a rushing mighty wind and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. And one sat upon each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Did they receive the Spirit here? Yeah, absolutely they received the Spirit here. In John chapter 20, what Jesus is doing is, it's a, symbolically, He is showing what is going to happen. He breathes on them, and in the same way, the Spirit blows wherever it wills. Eventually, they will have that Spirit in an apostolic, or, you can say, in a Pentecostal sense. In the sense that is described in the book of Acts. In the sense that it pertains only to the apostles and those whom God felt uh, free to distribute the Spirit to during that particular age. What we're talking about here is an extraordinary work that God would perform by the means of the Spirit indwelling the apostles. But he is not talking about the indwelling that has to do with conversion, the giving of a new heart, the new birth, that's not what he saw. They were already born again. They were already born again. All right, in light of our time, I'm, I will pick up verse 18 with the other verses next week. Let's, um, let's uh, turn to the Lord now in prayer. And I'll, I'll wrap it up in my prayer too. <laughs> Heavenly Father, what grace you have bestowed upon us in giving us the apostles. Lord, uh, because of Roman Catholicism and uh, many other forms of false worship, there is a tendency, Lord, on our part to uh, not give honor to the apostles and other men of fathers in the faith. And I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to be balanced in this. May we rejoice and give thanks for Peter and John and, and Paul and, and even men throughout history whom you have used, Lord, to, uh, to promote the message of the gospel, to be patterns after which we can shape, fashion, and form our own lives. We thank you so much for this, Lord. And we thank you for the common operations of the Spirit, Lord, for those things that we share in common with all believers. First and foremost, the enlightening of the mind and the, the opening of the eyes and the unstopping of the ears. Writing your law upon our hearts and upon our minds. Giving us a new heart, Lord. Increasing the grace that is in our life and enabling us, Lord, to grow in unity and peace and love for one another. Lord, we ask that you would please continue to do this work in us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.